It's the first episode of Farm to Tabor Season 2. If this is your first time listening, Farm to Tabor is a farm and a little bit of food podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Tabor, and I've worked in agriculture for over 20 years. I'm a crop scientist now, but started out as a farm worker doing dirty jobs. Clearing trees, digging holes, shoveling shit, running greenhouses, and working in field crews alongside immigrants and convict laborers. I got into agriculture just because I liked plants and working outdoors, but then it turned out like every other business, agriculture is mostly people stuff. And that's what Farm to Tabor is about, the people stuff. A lot of your media about agriculture and food is very thing and stuff driven. We talk about apples or compost or this farm or that restaurant. When we do look under the hood at systematic issues, it's usually limited to just so stories about policy or personal interest stories. And they always reinforce a received narrative about sustainable agriculture, and they don't question it. When I started out in agriculture, I was very interested in sustainability, and I still am. But after 20 years in the business, I realized that a lot of how the sustainability industry, and yes, you'd better believe it's an industry, talks about food and farming's problems are still chained to the same cultural nonsense that created these problems in the first place. For example, we can't just blame all of our food problems on subsidies. Where did the subsidies come from? From deep cultural ideas about how food is supposed to work and economic issues like preferential treatment for landowners, they were already making U.S. food and agriculture a horror show long before subsidies came along. If we want to fix this, we got to go deep into our culture and we got to go deep into our personal stuff. So to help us get personal, today we have Michelle Allison, registered dietitian on the show, we're going to talk about the culture and psychology driving the food and sustainable farm movements. So a quick intro, Rubens and Marilyn Monroe aside, European and Euro-American culture's preferences for slender bodies go way back. Way before we had anything like science telling us it was healthy to be skinny, we already thought it was pretty. And ever since we developed scientific techniques, we've been looking for evidence that pretty, I mean skinny, is healthier. Except... For something we've been looking so hard for proof on for this long, we have a hard time nailing down anything conclusive. It turns out there are just a lot of things that influence your longevity and health and athletic performance, like sleep, alcohol and drug use, activity level, uh, exposure to lead and violence and other environmental stressors, genetics, mental health, the number and quality of your relationships, geography, and so on. Diet and weight are just two drops in a big bucket of health. So what we're saying here is not, hey, let's go eat all the fried chicken. What we're saying is that there's a fitness and diet industry, and their messaging focuses on diet and weight way out of proportion to how much space they take up in the total health bucket. And it's hard to correlate that urgent messaging with data. So today's podcast is about cultural messaging about health as opposed to data-driven messaging about health and what we perceive as health problems and what we think is a good way to fix them. I feel like there's there's a lot of overlap between the food and agriculture sectors just in terms of cultural baggage that we take into it. Yeah. And the food people have done a lot more thinking about it 
than the ag people have. I agree. And I have wanted, like for a long time, I've wished that somebody like you who knows about these things could um, pull apart some of what I could see on the surface was bullshit. Like, (laughs) not to be rude or anything, but like Michael Pollan has always bothered me on some level that I could could never fully articulate. Um, And so I suspected that somebody who knows a lot more about agriculture and the food system as a whole would have much more like cogent criticisms than me, who I'm just like, I hate that guy. <laughs> well, it's funny because like farmers have a lot of beefs with Michael Pollan and for like entirely different reasons than I do. Um, sure. <laughs> there's some shared, there's some overlap, but his, his pesticide science is not, you know, on top where you'd want it to be if you were writing about things like that, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. So that's, I know and it's, it's, I don't want to like build my career by ripping other people down. So I don't want to, <laughs> I don't think that's appropriate. Um, and he did do a lot to call attention to the issue, but it was often in ways that weren't constructive the way they needed to be. Yeah. So I don't know what you do with that. I, I don't know either. I'm just, I'm just a jerk and I just, I'm mean to people and that's just how I do my thing, but that's okay. I know. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of like, I don't know. Every once in a while I feel guilt about it and I'm like, hang on. And then other times, oh, it's gone. Um, all right. Yeah. I made some notes on what we should talk about because my mind is blanking right now. I'm just so excited. Um, Oh, man. So terror management, walk us through what terror management is and what that has to do with food. (laughs) Wow. Okay. um, It's a big question. And I am not like, I'm not an expert on this. I'm somebody who like picked up a couple of books and read about it and read some of the papers um, because I started to realize that it seemed connected to food and eating. But but, like the, the original credit goes to Ernest Becker, who was an anthropologist in like the seventies. Um, and then to the researchers who turned this into a social psychology research program, that would be like Sheldon Solomon, Tom Pizzinski, uh, Jeff Greenberg. Um, and there's some, some other researchers doing this work. So all of the credit goes to these people and I will probably explain this very poorly. Um, but the, the idea is that the suppressed fear of death is actually responsible for lots of human behavior and lots of human culture, Mm -hmm. culture building, essentially. Um, And that people behave in ways that are sometimes uh, counterintuitive or maybe not even all that logical um, because they are attempting to either distance themselves from the fear of death or to build up their self-esteem in a way that helps them to feel safe from the fear of death. Yes. often unconsciously without really realizing that's what they're engaging in. Yes. You know, and something, I think my first brush with this idea was several years ago. Um, I was reading something actually by Cornell West and he was like, culture is what makes you decide not to kill yourself. <laughs> you know, and he's, he's talking about the black experience because he's like, yeah. listen, we've been through some stuff. We had some reasons to want to do that. And we had to build our cultures so that we would stay alive. Yeah, the salience, the mortality salience is is sort of like the term they use for it is like sort of how aware and how primed you are to think about your mortality will definitely probably be different from social group to social group or cultural group to cultural group, depending how they're treated. And I feel like a certain amount of privilege insulates you from mortality salience. Um, I I don't know what the research says on that, but that's my hunch that if you're quite privileged, you're not primed with mortality salience quite as often as somebody who's like worried about like, uh, is a cop going to look at me sideways today when I go out on the street? Right. Yeah. yeah. And it came up in another pop culture spot. If you listen to S-Town, um, the host says something really interesting. He's trying to explain how stuff works in this area that he's, you know, reporting on. He's like, you know, some of these kids I was talking to just have this attitude of, fuck it. You know, <laughs> there's... Um, 
you know, mortality is a little bit more salient when you're, you know, when you're poor and rural and you're doing a lot of dangerous jobs and just people had a very different attitude towards life and risk taking as a result. So yeah, it just culturally it does show up. Yes. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's funny to see how people describe it because they don't always use the words terror management, but you see it pop up over and over again. Yeah. It's, it seems to be pretty omnipresence, I would say, even though, like you said, people may not be using that specific terminology. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I started to feel like I was maybe losing my mind a little bit when I <laughs> noticed how prominent this sort of like distancing from the fear of death is in like politics, but yeah. also in diet culture, in nutrition. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like there's probably some amount of that in sustain- sustainability and like fitness culture. Oh, so much. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the big places where I actually first ran to the term terror management was when I was working with some folks on some luxury marketing projects, um, because that'll happen sometimes in sustainable food. And I was just kind of curious, like, how does this work? Because, I mean, there's they're selling the food itself and how it's good for you and how it tastes good. But I was seeing something that wasn't quite that. It was just like, oh, it's elevated. And I started kind of just Googling around to figure out what was going on here. And um, it was fascinating. There were all these articles talking about how luxury marketing works, and they repeatedly made this precise point, which was um, premium items, you're selling it based on taste, you know, quality, uh, just the actual object itself. When you're selling luxury, you're selling terror management. Here's what terror management is. And I was like, what? Oh my gosh, so they came right out and said it. They They did. Multiple times all over the place. It is core to luxury marketing. Okay. So they're aware of this. They're, they're grinding their elbow into this yeah. spot. On purpose. Yeah. So, they're so jackhammering that. that. <laughs> yeah. That is fascinating. Isn't and like the way, the way that I see it showing up in all kinds of marketing, but especially in like talk about food and, and food marketing is the distancing humans from their animality, mm-hmm. like turn, turning food almost into like a magical object that has symbolic properties that will be transmitted to you if you incorporate that food into your body and yep. I'm like this is like some spooky like this is some magical level shit that's happening. yeah that's religion is what that is <laughs> yeah that's that's religion is what that is you know what I mean yeah yeah yeah. So. yeah so fascinating um gosh it keeps showing up in pop culture I mean like I don't know if you're a Harry Potter fan uh <laughs> But there's, it's kind of funny because Rowling, you know, like, I, I wonder how she arrived at this, but the the bad guys in Harry Potter are, they call themselves Death Eaters. There's definitely a uh, we're too good to die vibe going on. Like, that's kind of what's driving them. There's a lot of uh, elitism and exclusivity, and there's a lot of luxury culture consumption that goes along with it. It's just fascinating. So. Yes. And that is all the stuff that hits all of my like interest and curiosity <laughs> buttons because I've I've always been fascinated with snobbery. Babe. <laughs> I don't know another way to put it. Since I was a child, I was like, wow, there are some snobby f- people in the world. Like, what's wrong with them? How amazing! <laughs> and, uh, as a grown up, I keep returning to that over and over again. When there's food snobbery, when there's snobbery about how bodies are supposed to look or supposed to function, or you know the ways that people are supposed to be in the world, the things that are respectable versus the things that are not respectable, all of that stuff. I've always caught my attention and now I'm coming to this like understanding that like yeah I mean people are afraid that they're gonna die because they are yeah. but it means they're not actually that important on a cosmic level so there's this desire and need to puff yourself up and to feel a kind of magical significance because yeah. it feels like it elevates you above that and I feel like that's a driving force behind snobbery but also just outright oppression and right. hierarchies so. 
God, it's everywhere. Yeah, it <laughs> it's is. so crazy. It's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. There's, I feel like this is a topic where you can go off in a million directions. So again, I wrote down some notes to keep us on topic and, uh, <laughs> let's see. Um, so I wanted to do a quick overview of health at any size and what oh, that sure. means and kind of like the science behind it. And then we can tie that into terror management. So health at every size, it's actually um, the, the term itself and the definition of the term is sort of like controlled by an organization called the Association for Size, Diversity and Health. And it's been trademarked as a term, I guess, because things like this have a tendency to get co-opted <laughs> by <laughs> diet culture, by diet industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, it's a set of principles guiding people in healthcare, but, you know, even people who are maybe not directly involved in healthcare, that has to do with like weight inclusivity, acknowledging that people come in a variety of shapes and sizes and maybe that we don't need to inherently attach a moral value to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that all people deserve to have access and equitable access to uh, the conditions that provide for good health, um, that people deserve to go to see a doctor and not be treated uh, like garbage or <laughs> be stereotyped right out of the gate based <gasps> on shock body or identity or, or anything like that. Um, and that eating in a way that supports your individual needs and health um, is probably better than trying to subscribe to like one diet fits all type of ideology and the same type of thing for movement and activity that, you know, people get to decide how they use their bodies, what feels right for their bodies, uh, where their limitations are and how they want to move rather than needing to subscribe to this fitness culture that is um, pushing this image that you have to do a certain thing or a certain Mm -hmm. intensity of thing to be a good person. Right. Oh, that's so good. And uh, so where that taps into food and agriculture. (laughs) Yes, it's interesting. So people, if you blog or if you tweet about agriculture, people will ask you questions about food because, um, you know, Michael Pollan trained people that every conversation about agriculture is secretly a conversation about your personal shopping list. (laughs) Yes. And this is the thing that has really gotten to me that this is how it gets translated in Mm -hmm. everyone's mind. And I'm still trying to work out why that is that any discussion of a system or a systemic issue immediately gets translated into your personal shopping habits. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm like, that's, it seems like a category error to me. Like we're, yeah. you know, we're talking about a big thing and then it's immediately getting translated into like, well, what can I as a consumer do to avoid feeling yucky about this? Yeah. And it's, I don't know, it's fascinating because there's other categories of systematic problems we talk about, like healthcare or redlining and residential segregation. But when we talk about, here's a problem with the healthcare system, you don't automatically go, so what should I do at my doctor's office? You know, it's understood yeah. that it's a systematic problem. Um yeah, if we're talking redlining, you know, people don't start going, okay, so what kind of house should I buy? It's understood that it's a systematic problem. So I don't know, it's fascinating how food gets tweaked around like that. Yeah, well, I guess, I don't know, it may, maybe it's because it's so, it's been so intensely, well, I don't know, it's been turned into a consumer product so overtly and there mm-hmm. is so much um, association between individual shopping habits and building a symbolic self. Yeah. <laughs> like what you buy builds your symbolic self, which, right. which helps to insulate you. I am my consumption choices. <laughs> Definitely. So that's tr- true with food, literally, because you're taking it into your body. But it's also true with anything that you can walk into a store and buy. I feel like there's a, a parallel to be made there with consumption. Yeah. Well, so something that I find really interesting in sustainable agriculture and food is kind of 
how sustainable food can't really decide if it's going to be actually about sustainability or if it's just going to be a luxury category. You ever notice that? No, but I would love to hear more about that, actually. <laughs> yeah, so like, so a thing that'll happen, and as, a, as an agricultural person, like this is where the rubber really hits the road for me, is if we're talking about really building sustainable food system, that means that things need to change at a systematic level, like farms in general would, you know, maybe start to do some things differently. And that's actually happening. It's, it's kind of interesting to see how uh, organic farmers were doing all this stuff that seemed crazy in the 90s, like cover crops, and now pretty much everybody's doing it. Um, so we do have that wide-scale adoption. There are some other things that haven't seen that kind of wide-scale adoption, um, you know, because they involve a little bit more systematic change, and it's not something individual farmers can necessarily choose to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but farmers also are very into individual decision-making and not into systematic actions. Fascinating. Um, okay, I just really see a lot of issues in agriculture that it can only be solved by farmers basically kind of getting together and forming co-ops. And that is done to some extent, but not to the extent that really needs to happen. And as a result, they're all atomized. And they're actually facing a lot of the same problems that individual consumers are, like as consumers of farm tech, um, because they're just receiving whatever agribusiness wants to make. And that's, I don't want to paint them as victims here because they, they're the farm, like the farm population kind of built that agribusiness system where they act as passive recipients. So it's the sustainable ag movement really kind of paints farmers as passive victims. And you're like, no, they built this just as much as anyone else, you know, there's complicity, but yeah, it also kind of binds them. It sounds like from doing, from uh, doing collective action. Yeah. It's, it's the system that they kind of helped build that doesn't help them out. And I'm just, I don't know. I'm really uncomfortable with how they're treated as pure victims of this whole thing, but sure. Yeah. um, (laughs) Do you feel, do you feel like there are, there are cultural reasons for this? Something about the mindset of individualism or something that has specific connections to agriculture? Absolutely. Um, It's a lot of class-related stuff. It's really interesting because I think we've kind of viewed farmers as this proletarian class, right? That's how the received wisdom is. But if you own land and you own a business, usually multiple businesses, there's a bunch of LLCs involved in 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 most farms, Um, you own millions of dollars worth of equipment, and you not only employ like the country's most exploited class of workers, but you actively lobby for laws to keep them exploited to make your business easier for you. Right. I don't think your labor. I think your management. So yeah, yeah. And that, that actually squares really well with what I just kind of witnessed growing up. Like I grew up in um, the Portland area in Oregon, mm. but I was really adjacent to lots of farmland and agricultural production. And yeah. the families that owned farms were legit like lords of the. Yeah. You know they. Were were like rich people and they were yeah. <laughs> some serious clout. These were not, you know, like you said, the, these were not like disempowered uh, workers. I know. Like we have this myth that they're like direct descendants of the European, like medieval peasant class. And they're just f-ing not, they are a creature of capitalism. And you know, when, when family farms do struggle with the economic system, it's not because of capitalism. Like it's because they're bad at capitalism. <laughs> like <laughs> capitalism, put them there, live by it, die by it. You know what I mean? Um, and it's, it's sad and everything, but you know, a lot of classes of people have problems. Farmers are just one of them. And, um, I don't know. It's, it's a tough conversation because when you come up in life as a farm worker, you see some stuff that nobody else does and everyone else receives the marketing about how farmers are, you know, all pure, all great. And I have had some really fantastic experience with the good farmers who are responsible, who are really, um, thinking through their actions, <laughs> they're out there. They're a hundred percent out there and they're surrounded by a bunch of other people. 
So <laughs> I think you can put that placement in a hierarchy, despite the sort of like the image that's marketed about mm-hmm. farmers being salt of the earth, you know, sort of disempowered people. You think that place in the hierarchy strongly connects to the tendency to avoid collectivism and to think very individually. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really honestly a lot of where it comes from. We kind of yeah. s- the Jeffersonian ideal of individual small family farms, yeah. like. I'm still not sure if Jefferson like did that as a mistake or if it was a deliberate con because, you know, the ancient Romans tried that and it didn't work at all. Um, what happens when you have an individualized peasantry like that, you know, um, is the estate owners can pick off the families one by one. They can play them off each other. And that's exactly what happened in ancient Rome. And I'm sorry, but Thomas Jefferson wrote enough, like read enough books to know exactly how that happened and how it was about to go down. So... Either he really screwed up or it was on purpose because he was a giant estate owner and he had a lot to gain from having a really atomized, like not collective um, action peasantry. Right. So that's interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting, actually. <laughs> Isn't it? But yeah, like getting back to terror management, there's a lot of class associations attached to owning land and to being a farmer. Um, all right. We're going to get really deep in the weeds here. Um, <laughs> so one of the, one of the biggest issues that we talk about is, you know, like there's farmer suicides out there and it's really interesting to me how that is always kind of used as the end to a conversation. Like that's a conversation stopper. Farmers are oppressed because they're committing suicide. Right. Um, that's the start to a conversation. Time to take a sidebar. This podcast is all about rural mental health, and one of Farm to Tabor's first episodes was about the struggle to get farm communities to take mental health more seriously. That said, we need to talk about this so-called farmer suicide epidemic. The 2016 CDC study that really put it into the news had a lot of mistakes and had to be corrected. The main problem is they counted a lot of farm worker suicides as farmer suicides. So what's really happening is there's a suicide epidemic in migrant farm workers. Through the magic of data fudging, it became a rash of farmer suicides. And then through the magic of the farm lobby, farm worker suicides became a federal opportunity for funding farmers who, when they're in legitimate financial trouble, already have a thing we all have called bankruptcy law. As a rural mental health advocate, this just really sucks because I want to see things get better. And this isn't how things get better. You work through your issues by confronting them and quitting your bullshit, not by making more of it. Anyway, moving along. What I've been reading in the news anyway is that, especially so like in the United States, like white men have become increasingly aware that they, or at least they feel like they have lost some amount of social power and social status. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the self-destructive behaviors, whether it's like drug abuse or suicide, have increased that's yeah. a relative loss of privilege or, or a perceived relative loss of privilege it doesn't actually necessarily mean op- oppression on a systemic scale yeah right yeah and I, as what i see a lot of that driving is when you go out and you talk to farmers um like that's their whole community is other landowners there's other people living in their county but they don't really hang out with them because they don't count they're not real people wow therefore yeah. if i lose my farm i'm not f-ing real people and they I'm literally Yeah, they don't know how to live with that. And when we're talking about farmer suicides, yes, it is tragic. Yes, it is a big problem. Um, But a lot of people have economic reversals, and that alone is not the driver. There's also the sense of only farmers count as real people. I can't be real people. I don't know how to live like this. And that's something that no amount of economic interventions are going to change, is that class issue. 
Yeah, and it it almost sounds like as though people are using their their farm or even just like being a part of this tier Mm -hmm. in the agricultural system Mm -hmm. as like a like an immortality project. Yes, and I think that right there might be why we're so obsessed with the idea of multi generational family farms. Yes, because literally (laughs) it's going to be passed on, and when you lose that, people feel like their life loses significance, and therefore Uh they lose self esteem, and that that makes their life meaningless. Uh huh. Yes. And as somebody who's lived and worked in a lot of rural areas, and I've lost family members to suicide, and I've lost family members and friends to drug abuse, uh, and none of us were farmers, it's, I just really am not a fan of farmers going like, oh, I did it, therefore it's a tragedy, you need to give me a government handout. Right, right. I'm just not a fan. I'm more important. Yeah, and it's, you know... um, it's kind of funny because people are like, why do you hate farmers? And you're like, I just don't automatically place them on a tier above everybody else. And that comes off as hate. Yeah. You know. It's that, that's the same argument behind like why feminists supposedly hate men. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. <laughs> it's like, yeah. well, just because, you know, you don't automatically invest somebody with more authority than other people. It's not the same as hating them. You're listening to Farm to Tabor, part one of a three-parter with Michelle Allison, registered dietitian and food culture critic. Thanks for listening. Catch you on the next part.